Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is this week's co-host, Stefan Allen. Hello! So this week we watched The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, the new prequel story in the Hunger Games franchise. Adapted from the novel by Suzanne Collins, it takes place 64 years before the first book and film, starring Tom Blythe as a young version of the future tyrant, Coriolanus Snow. As a poor but aristocratic student among the capital elite, he is tasked with mentoring a tribute in the latest Hunger Games, the charismatic young singer Lucy Gray Beard, played by Rachel Zegler. So I am a great fan of the Hunger Games franchise in general. I read the books many years ago, like when I was in university probably, <laughs> and really enjoyed all the films, and I was happy to come see the new one. There was an interesting kind of spread of reviews for this, because I think some people, like some of the early reviews I saw from critics I follow were like, it's the best one in the franchise, it's so nuanced and dark. And others were like, this is trash. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and I liked it, but I was like, I'm slightly side-eyeing the people who thought it was the best in the franchise, because I was like, this is a good YA film, and like, there's some solid performances, and there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about, but it is not the best of the franchise. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's very hard for a prequel, especially a prequel that focuses on a villain, to be definitive. Even if the Star Wars prequels had been just incredibly made, the Hunger Games were built to tell a specific story, and it is the story of a revolution as much as it is anything else. And so it's hard for this film to be anything more significant than just, you know, more of a look at this world, you know, a character piece about this. Like, it's it's hard for it to have terribly much to say, because here we might see people who are revolutionary, but the revolution will not work, like, it won't happen. I mean, you could say the same things, the same thing of Rogue One. That's the kind of critique people had before Rogue One came out. And watching Rogue One, I'm like, that's a masterpiece. And the same for like Andor. So I think it kind of depends how you handle it. I do have a lot of thoughts about the world building and stuff, which we can discuss later in the episode. But um, as kind of franchise prequels go, like in a Hollywood context, it's pretty respectable because the author, Suzanne Collins, it's not really a cash grab situation. So he was like, I have one story I'm interested in telling. It's this one. There are like a couple of bits in this film where they try to tie in a bit more with the main Hunger Games franchise. Like there's a bit of a corny reference to like Katniss Everdeen's name is like named after this foraged root vegetable known as the swamp potato. And they kind of reference it. And I'm like, well, this is corny. And there's like a few kind of callbacks and stuff. But otherwise... It doesn't feel like, for example, the absolute like nadir of this subgenre would be the Fantastic Beasts movies, which are just garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's sort of like the the director and the studio and stuff have all made it really clear. Like they were like, we're not kind of pressuring to make any spin-offs. We are only making a movie if Suzanne Collins wants to write a book and she comes out from her not reclusive state, but she is a lot more kind of retiring than a lot of other very famous authors, and I have a lot of respect for that decision. <laughs> Yeah. So, so I love these books. Uh, I read these books, I think I started in lockdown, actually. Mm. Um, so I was quite late to them. And they really, really blew me away. You know, I think in a world where, you know, it's so rare for YA novels to be elevated to this level of success and fame. And I think The Hunger Games are a really wonderful series to be as famous and as yeah. as successful as they are. I was slightly old for them. You know, I was in university by the time they came out. I just slightly missed the boat on it as a as a young person myself. But I think about this compared to Harry Potter, another sort of fantasy series that was really successful that was about revolution and taking down the powers of darkness. But it's like and politically absolute nonsense, whereas like the politics of the Hunger Games franchise are quite interesting and meaty. Yeah, that's it. I think this helps you see the world in a way that's... Like, I, I loved being able to see in The Hunger Games a lot of perfectly likeable people living in the capital. If you met them, you'd be like, yeah, that's just a nice person who runs a shop or whatever. But because we're seeing it through the eyes of Katniss, who's grown up in terrible depravity and who's been forced to partake in The Hunger Games, you know, that just looks really gross. And I think that really helps you think about yourself as a person living in the Western world, benefiting from the suffering of others. Just a lot more satisfying than the more sort of pantomime villains of uh, of, of something like Harry Potter. 
so to kind of give a general introduction to the main squad involved in this, director Francis Lawrence made all but one of the Hunger Games movies. I do think that Francis Lawrence did a really good job with this series, and most of the other films he's made have been bad. I enjoyed Constantine, which is his first film, but everything else he's made is actively terrible, including immediately after The Hunger Games, he made a film with Jennifer Lawrence called Red Sparrow, which was a transparent Black Widow ripoff and is appalling. (laughs) (laughs) However, I have kind of a lot of respect for him as the sort of person who has clearly got a good relationship with Suzanne Collins and is sort of shepherding this franchise through its uh, very lucrative process for Lionsgate. I assume Lionsgate is entirely surviving off this financially. The screenplay is written by Michael Leslie and Michael Arndt, a double Michael. Michael Arndt wrote Toy Story 3 and Star Wars The Force Awakens and Michael Leslie is a playwright and he also did the Assassin's Creed movie and the Macbeth film with Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard, which were both directed by Justin Curzel. Writing is not really what I was thinking about with those films, but I did enjoy them. They're very stylish. (laughs) And their job was to kind of hammer out a viable film out of this book, which I've not read, but the structure is quite interesting in ways that we will discuss a bit later in the podcast, because obviously you kind of want to avoid it just being a story about the actual Hunger Games, because... We've already seen that like two and a half times in the other movies, so it gets repetitive. And also the nature of this, because it's set 64 years in the past, means that the game layout has to be more simple because like they don't have all the technology and funding yet to like make it really complicated. So the story structure kind of works differently in this film. Yeah. So I haven't read the book either, but I have researched it. And I gather that much like the original Hunger Games trilogy, the novel, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, is incredibly about the internal thinking of the protagonist. I think that is a big challenge in adapting any of these books, is because it's all through the incredibly specific and limited perspective of Katniss Everdeen. You know, it can be hard when reading the book sometimes to notice that a character isn't horrible if Katniss dislikes them. And, like, that's a really fun tension. Not unreliable in the sense of, you know, if she says a thing happened, then it did happen. But in in the sense of her take on each character, because she likes very, very few people. She's not very trusting. You know, that is a huge selling point of those novels, I think. And so what I gather from researching the Songbird book is that... You know, that's very true of the protagonist here as well. So the protagonist is uh, Coriolanus Snow, is that, is that, is that yes. how you pronounce that? There's a lot of really fantastic <laughs> names in these books. <laughs> yes. And so in the book, the point is that Snow has incredible social skills. He's incredibly manipulative, a very, very smooth operator, very likable. You know, he is, he is liked by people, but is also incredibly cynical and manipulative he isn't kind um he is a very callous person and so in the book you never forget that this man is horrible because you spend all your time inside his head and you see him interacting with people who maybe don't realize how terrible a person he is because he's very good at hiding that so that's really hard to convey in a film where we aren't going to be sort of inside his own head And so this can't have been an easy book to adapt. And he is presented differently, I think, in the film. Hmm. One of the things here is that like Katniss is such an incredible character and Jennifer Lawrence is a a once-in-a-generation talent. She is so, so good in those movies. And the character development for Katniss over the course of the books and films is really kind of smartly articulated because she starts off as this person who is quite naive. Like she's not a natural strategist. She's not very naturally politically minded. She kind of takes things at face value because she's quite a straightforward person. And she's sort of forced into all these incredibly difficult moral decisions and exposed to this completely different way of life. And there's also a lot of elements to do with um, the performative nature of the Hunger Games that she's completely unsuited to but the reason why she succeeds is because she has this authenticity that appeals to people and a lot of kind of the the first film is about her being sort of drilled in performing femininity to the audience and it's such a cool character to see in a film of this type kind of aimed at teenagers and in this film 
I mean, because it's only one movie, you have much less time to see these characters develop. But also you've got two actors who are definitely good, like Tom Blythe and Rachel Zegler are good, but they are not giving as kind of complicated performances as Jennifer Lawrence was capable of. But like there is this interesting thing where Suzanne Collins very straightforwardly sets up Lucy Gray Baird as this opposite figure to Katniss, where she's this person who does know how to perform and it's kind of the only thing she knows how to do. Like she's really good at it. She understands other people. And because the film is like from Coriolina Snow's perspective, there's always this way in which Lucy Gray is sort of enigmatic and we don't know entirely to what extent she's authentically in love with him, which is, I think, quite an interesting element. Before we go any further, I should also introduce these actors. Um, Tom Blythe, they're both allegedly playing teenagers because like, he's a student. I assume maybe he could be like a university age student. He's 28. He's clearly not a teenager, <laughs> um, as is often the case in this kind of film. So whatever. But he is a British actor who, unlike many of his type, is not, uh, not a colossal aristocrat. He's just sort of a regular middle class guy. Although he did, he went to the National Youth Theatre and then Juilliard and is very, very trained. I've not seen him in anything else, but he's clearly sort of an up and coming person. Rachel Zegler is a lot more famous. Her breakout role was in the West Side Story remake a couple of years ago. She is going to be playing Snow White in the Disney Snow White movie. She is unfortunately at the centre of a kind of bizarre, warped hate campaign on the internet, which has been going for the past six months or so, mostly fueled by weird racist Disney fans. I feel bad for her. That's clearly something she is not going to be able to shake partly because she wasn't allowed to respond to any of it during the actor's strike. But she seems like a lovely person. She's clearly a very talented singer. I will watch West Side Story at some point. I went to see this film with um, fellow podcast host Claire Biddles and she was telling me all about how she's seen West Side Story like four times in theatres and many more times afterwards. So um, that's another true Rachel Zegler expert there. (laughs) That is nice. But also the character Sejanus Plinth, who's sort of credited third in the cast here, is her, her boyfriend. So um. Little connection oh. there. Yeah. Josh Andres Rivera, who is also in West Side Story. He's wonderful in this as well. Yeah, he's great. I mean, yeah, I really did like all these actors. I, t- I take your point that uh, it's hard to recapture the lightning in the bottle of uh, of Lawrence, but they're all incredibly likable. I had a really nice moment after the film. I went into the Hunger Games Reddit to see like what, you know, hardcore Hunger Games fans made of this film. And I just saw like a really nice thread where people talked about Rachel Zegler these were people who loved the book and were like oh don't mess up Lucy Gray for us and they just really really liked her and so it's nice that while she's in the middle of this storm that there is you know this new developing passionate fan base that really loves her Mm. yeah I mean she's great and it's like she does have this sort of perky polished sort of vibe which is clearly ideal for this because this character is just basically always performing So to kind of get started and dig into the plot, there is a little prologue in this movie that sort of sets the scene for Coriolanus Snow's childhood, where the foundation of Pan Am, the sort of Pan-American nation dystopia that these books all take place in, is that there is some kind of massive rebellion war between the... uh, the districts and the capital. And at this point, Coriolanus and his cousin, who's played by Hunter Schaefer, are little children and they're clearly starving and they come from this really powerful aristocratic family. But it sets up pretty early that they've lost all of their wealth. So they're living in this sort of decaying mansion and starving. And by the time he is an adult, like he's retained his place in society and he is part of this this school where all of the wealthy capital elite go but he and his cousin have created this fake persona for him where like he always looks great and all his peers think that he's still wealthy but like he definitely isn't and they're all basically starving so it's this very interesting portrayal of genteel poverty which I think is quite rare to see in American media because that's a very European and British concept I think because there's been various periods of the past like 200 years where We've had all these aristocrats who are perceived as wealthy and powerful but don't have any money and they have a chip on their shoulder as a result. So his whole goal in life is to regain the family honour and become wealthy and powerful and that specifically in this context means winning the plinth prize which i spent most of the film thinking was something to do with an actual plinth but is actually named after the (laughs) plinth family his best friend is sejanus plinth and that guy's dad is like this wealthy guy 
but it turns out that just being a good student is not enough and the guy who is sort of the inventor of the Hunger Games and also the person who's in charge of the Hunger Games which is Peter Dinklage and Viola Davis playing Casca Highbottom and Dr. Volumnia Gall just some of the fantastic names in this movie (laughs) they have decided that the new challenge is that each of these wealthy top students is going to be given a different tribute among this generation's Hunger Games tributes and they have to mentor that person to be the best on television because ratings are down and people aren't allowed into the Hunger Games. And the one person who has kind of the social skills to figure out what the problem is here is Coriolina Snow. And he quickly alights upon the issue, which is that audiences are not engaging enough with the tributes. They need to like have more of a personal touch. So the kind of first act of the story is him figuring out that Lucy Gray Baird is the best tribute by far in that perspective. Because like as soon as she gets reaped on TV, she... A, attacks another girl who is in her neighbourhood for like betraying her and getting her reaped. And secondly, she uh, sings on screen. So she immediately has this kind of presence that the other tributes don't. And Coriolanus then, once all the tributes come to the capital, he sort of courts her and tries to figure out ways to like get her on television and get people to engage with her as a character. Yeah, this is as much as anything a film about performance and about production. I am a big fan of reality television myself, so it was kind of funny seeing that this is the 10th Hunger Games and the ratings are down. People aren't watching this. Yes. <laughs> the first few seasons of The Hunger Games uh, was a lot of fun. Hey, we all loved seeing children fight to the death, you know, the first few times, but that's uh, a bit samey now. Uh, and I remember when. Big Brother hit its 10th season, uh, and it was only a season later that Channel 4 decided to to wrap it up. So uh, this is a very familiar part of the history of reality TV. Do you know the origins of how Suzanne Collins came up with the idea for Hunger Games? So I think, I know this anecdote, I think it was that she was watching TV and flicking back and forth between mid-2000s reality TV and Iraq war coverage. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which is very dark. The books are darker and more sophisticated than the films which is more or less inevitable for this kind of situation but one of the things that was really interesting to me watching the movies and then later becoming more exposed to sort of American TV as a whole is like how much we as sort of non-American viewers don't notice a lot of the ways that like this is such an interesting kind of satire of American television because you know there was all this stuff to do with the American broadcasts of the Olympics where they were just aping all that stuff really clearly and like the fanfare they use sounds like NBC's Olympic fanfare and stuff and all the stuff they have with Caesar Flickerman the presenter is so similar to like so many American sort of contest shows and stuff and obviously we have our version of that here but you know here you'd see a parody then something like black mirror yes it does such an it's such a good job of that like in terms of visual satire and the performances those individual characters are giving and in this one the equivalent role goes to beloved character actor jason schwartzman who has such a fun role here he is lucretius lucky flickerman who is clearly caesar flickerman's dad or uncle or something and he is like an early version of the Hunger Games presenter, but it's clearly an era when this is a less prestigious job. So he's a bit corny. Like he's he's also a weatherman and newsreader, and he's always kind of like telling audiences about how he loves to do sleight of hand magic tricks and stuff like this. <laughs> and he's just this fantastic, such a fun role for like a really good actor to be in. They have several heavy hitters in this, much like the other Hunger Games movies, just getting really fun parts to play. And I found him like an interesting illustration of what the Pan Am culture was at that point, because it's just like, there isn't as much a sense of him being a dangerous or powerful individual as with Caesar Flickerman, who is like quite scary at sometimes. Yeah, he's really amazing. There's a brilliant bit in this where he is still the weatherman. So he presents the weather live from the Hunger Games studio. I love that bit. (laughs) (laughs) Did I get this right? I think this is the first time they've had... It's the first time he's presented it. Yeah, it it seems like maybe there wasn't a dedicated presenter in the other Hunger Games. So it was televised, but they didn't have someone whose job was to sort of shepherd it. Yeah. And we know that a big part of this film is the story of beefing up The Hunger Games and making it more watchable and making it more like television. That maybe previously this was sort of, I don't know, public broadcasting in a way. Yeah. And now we're moving towards making something more marketable and more entertaining. And, you know, that being incredibly evil, that you have this thing that really should end. We we have 
multiple characters advocate for the end of the uh, Hunger Games at this point. They go, look, if the ratings are down, should we just cancel this horrible thing? Should we stop making children fight to the death? And they go, nah, I reckon this has got some mileage in it. I think this could run and run. I don't think it's much of a jump to assume that Jason Schwartzman's character is brought in as one additional way of making this more watchable and more engaging in the same way that you know, kind of making the children into characters and kind of giving them interviews and things. All of these things are designed to increase audience engagement with the with the characters. There's a great bit where Schwartzman's character cancels a restaurant reservation. Yes, I because, love that. <laughs> because these Hunger Games have gone on longer. Clearly, normally, this is over fairly quickly. Because yeah, like it seems of- like it's on for like, you know, a few hours, like 12 hours or something. And we are obviously used to thinking of this as like a multi-day slog. And this is the first time that that happens. And, and even then, he doesn't cancel the reservation. He just goes, no, just move it to later. Like, I'm sure it will be over in a couple of hours, which we're sort of watching it going, like, no, it won't. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really, really satisfying... Like, I love television production anyway. I find that a really, really fascinating world. Big Brother here in the UK did come back this year after five years off and sort of reinvented itself for a modern age. So, so I'm always interested in how reality TV remains relevant and sort of stays uh, up to are date. Are you going to watch the Squid Game reality show? Oh, maybe. I loved Squid Game. I reviewed it and I was like, this is shit. Okay. <laughs> I reviewed it and you can read my review at TV Guide, listeners. But yeah, a lot of other people, like I saw several reviews that were like, this is a masterpiece. This is one of the greatest reality shows. And I'm like, is it? It's so kind of, it just to me felt very much sort of, they've stolen the aesthetics of Squid Game without any smart ideas and just done another Big Brother ripoff. But um, we do not need to discuss that now. <laughs> <laughs> This is so irrelevant, and yet it is quite interesting. Big Brother itself, obviously, is named after details from a novel which had things to say, and then... Big Brother took sort of some of the aesthetic and ideas of that. Occasionally it'll do a Room 101 challenge using like the other big famous thing from the novel 1984. But this year they did an incredible thing where one episode they basically renamed the show. They said, right, you know, normally you're in Big Brother, but for one day only this show is now called The Hunger Games. You are no longer... housemates you are tributes i'm guessing this is partly a funding thing big brother these days is funded in part by product placement and sponsorship so i'm assuming with a new hunger games film coming out there was some sort of deal between itv slash endemol and uh lionsgate slash the hunger games where they were like can you just massively big up the hunger games but it's really really funny seeing a different political satire novel used to inspire a TV show that is not engaged in politics, really. So I think the idea of making reality based on Squid Game as well is like, sometimes people will watch stuff like this and the main takeaway is, I like the aesthetic and I do want to see some people fight to the death. (laughs) And the difference is that um, with Squid Game, all of the games are really fucking boring. Yeah. Uh... So you're like, I don't want to watch half an hour of people licking Dalgona candy. It's not It's not fun. <laughs> yeah, that's it. The, the thrill of things like Squid Game is how high the stakes are, yeah. right? Like, Squid Game is amazing because they are playing stupid games, but they get killed if they play badly, and that's... My review is basically, they ought to be torturing these contestants more, but also the project is unethical and they shouldn't be doing it anyway. So... <laughs> <laughs> But on that note, yeah, the other two kind of character actor roles in this are Peter Dinklage and Viola Davis's characters. Viola Davis plays this fantastically over-the-top total villain who is the head game maker, Volumnia Gall, and she sort of has these amazing costumes and designs all the ways to torment the tributes. And it's just an out-and-out evil kind of mad scientist character. And it's just a really fun role. She's just giving it everything. Very over-the-top performance, as I said. Peter Dinklage, meanwhile, is more of a dramatic role. He is the guy who invented the Hunger Games, like he came up with the concept and he clearly regrets it in a way that's very familiar for this type of character. I actually felt this character wasn't very well illustrated. It kind of felt a bit basic. He should have been fleshed out more. It just kind of felt like they've hired a really good actor to play someone who's pretty thinly drawn on the page. Yeah, I think that is actually a fairly consistent issue in this film, is that the talent of the performer often outshines the writing. I think the same is true for Josh Andres Riviera's role. He's incredible, an incredible actor playing the the revolutionary student, uh, Sir Janice Plinth. 
and the role is fairly one note, I would say, but the actor is brilliant. And yeah, that's definitely true with Dinklage. It took me a while to realise that the character was a bit limited because Dinklage is so good and really plays the sort of the pain of it. But also, you know, this is a character who has a lot of opinions. You know, when he talks to Snow, we know he has a very strong opinion of Snow. And the information is revealed slowly. A lot of it is is show, don't tell until the end. So the middle section of this movie is obviously the kind of Hunger Games themselves, which I don't feel like we really need to talk about. If you've seen the movie, you know what we're talking about. And if you've not seen it, you should go watch it. There's a very fun sort of straightforward Hunger Games sequence where Lucy Gray Baird is up against all these other tributes in what is clearly kind of an early simplified version of the games. It's in like an enclosed area, which is interesting. It's like they're clearly using a building that was already extant in Panem somewhere, rather than having the funding to build this really kind of complicated area. And I think like because of the they're having to put so much into the film, like they don't really manage to flesh out a lot of the tributes, which is the case in several other Hunger Games films too. So like Celavi, but uh, she does manage to survive. Surprise, surprise, because she's the main character. And by this point, she and Coralina Snow definitely have a kind of frisson of romance together. But primarily, it's really the sense that they're allies because they both kind of recognize a kindred spirit in the sense that they're both quite strategic thinkers in terms of presenting their public image to the world. So this is a great success with both of them. But um, in the end, it's actually a disaster for Coriolanus because he inevitably cheats to get her through because he wants to see her survive. Like he does actually kind of have a heart in this to a certain extent because like he clearly has feelings for her by this point. But um, because he cheated, he ends up getting a really bad sentence for a posh lad from the capital, which is that he is sent to become basically a stormtrooper for the Empire. And he, instead of being sent to District 8, which is where he was originally meant to go, he bribes his way into getting to District 12, which is where Lucy Gray Baird was. So he and his friend, Sejanus Plinth, the Josh Andres Rivera character, Rebel, they both end up going to work for like the fascist police force in the most kind of poverty-stricken part of Panem, which is this Appalachian coal mining community. But Lucy Greybeard is not a coal miner. She comes from a community known as the Covey, which is clearly kind of like a, a traveling community with sort of different traditions. And like she was just scooped up with the rest of her extended family when all of the districts were put together. So it's like she would otherwise have been traveling all around America but because like the government has like trapped everyone in their individual districts, it's really put a dampener on like her family's traditions. But she makes money singing. And um, of course, they do manage to meet up like once he goes there to be in this like horrible police job, which kind of ends up hardening him. And sort of the final act of the film, it's interesting because like the other Hunger Games films that have Hunger Games in them are kind of structured around the games. And then in this one, you get like the first kind of two thirds of the film are the Hunger Games. And then the final third is this situation in District 12 where he is kind of becoming more and more hardened to the concept that he needs to get back to the capital and become successful and be ambitious and rescue the family honour. And she is kind of offering this other way of life that he is potentially rejecting. So even as he becomes her lover and she is being like, why don't you come and live off the land with me or like escape north out of Panem? He is like letting go of any kind of human feeling that he might have had earlier and just becoming totally loyal to the capital. And also he's like willing to sell out his friend, the rebel. Yeah, there's a very amusing way of reading this entire film as the story of how police training corrupts you and makes you evil. <laughs> Coriolanus is not the nicest man already, but certainly all of the worst stuff he does... All of the most selfish things, all of the most, all of the greatest acts of betrayal uh, happen in this section of the film. You know, it is interesting. Like, I'd love to know what the experience is like of watching this film if you if you ship these characters. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of people do think he's hot, like, inevitably. The thing that I think Suzanne Collins is really good at portraying in a way that's very comprehensible to, to younger readers and viewers. This is, I was saying to my friends after we watched the film, like this is like the ultimate YA film. They have found everything possible to put in like a YA sci-fi fantasy and they can just fold up the genre now because it's absolutely everything is nails. You know, you've got your hot, evil, blonde, etc. But like 
Suzanne Collins is really good at introducing characters who are clearly a product of their circumstances in a really psychologically thought through way, but not kind of excusing them for the decisions they make, right? Because, you know, you see how Coriolanus and his cousin, played by Hunter Schaefer, Tigress Snow, who is in the later movie, she's like the kind of the cat girl, older woman who like helps Katniss. You can see how they've come from precisely the same background, but they have radically different values and like ways of dealing with their situation and like different personalities. He still seems to look up to his father, who was clearly an absolutely despicable, horrible person. And he also was very ambitious about rescuing his family. And obviously his family want him to succeed, which is his his grandmother and his uh, cousin, because they need more money and they don't want to be living in poverty. But Tigress is really kind of horrified by the lengths that he ends up going to. Whereas Rachel Zegler's character, Lucy Gray Baird, is a product of her background, which is like her her culture and also her personality as a performer and has like a very clear kind of moral background. But then kind of the most intriguing part of it is like the number of the young people in the capital who are really horrified by the games themselves, which is something that's clearly been drummed out of the culture by the time you get to Canis Everdeen's era. Because obviously you have Sejanus Plinth, who is this very politically active figure clearly not a strategist because like he keeps fucking up his own plans but he is very vocal and the only reason he's not been like rounded up and shot is clearly because he comes from this very privileged background which is a very smart detail to have in there but then there's other students who clearly aren't very thoughtful or political and they get personally invested in their own tributes and people in the hunger games and are so upset and horrified and like throwing up when they see people die Whereas 64 years later, it's just everyone's watching this as like fun gladiatorial combat and making bets on it and stuff because it's been completely normalized. Yeah, and that is such a true human thing, right? Like that no one complains that Big Brother is exploitative or voyeuristic now, even though it is. And it always was. And 20 years ago, that was something everyone was saying. And, you know, there there was a very vocal part of the population saying maybe television shouldn't be like this. And if someone said that now, that would feel like quite an extreme position, even though it's it's exactly the same position. Just normalisation has made it less sustainable. I think it was really satisfying to see Tigress in this, who's a very memorable character in Mockingjay. You know, not a massive, you know, she's not in it much and she's not super vocal, but she's just so memorable as being someone in the capital whose life was as disposable as anyone else's. And that this is someone who is capable of helping, helping the rebellion. So someone from precisely the same background can choose to play a more helpful role in making the world a better place. And I found that, like, such a relief. You know, I like a lot of sort of big, long-term nerdy franchises. And the risk often when you get spin-offs and prequels is that you get existing characters shoehorned in for the sake of it. You know, Greedo from the original Star Wars movie... (laughs) turning up as a child in the prequels because, uh, hey, you know, ah, look, it's this guy. And it doesn't really mean anything terribly much. It's just, it's just we've got all these characters, let's shove them in. And here, I thought they were extremely restrained. Unless stuff went over my head, I don't feel they went very far. Obviously, there's a couple of eye-rolling moments. But Tigris here is is a smart choice, I think. So that any reading of this as being, oh, well, I guess if you're if you're raised in the capital, you're going to be a fascist. And no, not true. Yeah, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on with the kind of production design in terms of how they did the capital and how they kind of introduced Coriolanus and Tigris like at the beginning, because... We obviously are kind of used to seeing the iconography of the Hunger Games now, but um, I read this interview with the director where he kind of talks about in this era, they went into a lot of post-war German architecture and stuff like that. So it's like a combination of obviously like the go-to for any film of this type is like loads of dystopian movies, which are explicitly kind of inspired by Nazi imagery. Like I think Star Wars is far more explicit than this is, but all of this sort of heroic architecture and like these big buildings you see in the capital are very kind of intentionally Germanic. And he also talks about the stuff with like the rubble and sort of the sense of destruction and post-war rebuilding is very much like Germany after it lost the war 
which is kind of this interesting detail. So you've got that for the capital. And then out in District 12, which is like the main other location, it's a lot more kind of just like, here's a classic coal mining town. But like the music is a really major part of the world building for there, because that's what we see through Lucy Gray. And it was really cool to learn that apparently Suzanne Collins is this massive country music expert. Like she was a country music DJ for a while or something. And they had this country music producer come in Dave Cobb to kind of write the music and you know they did practice recordings with Rachel Zegler who's obviously this incredible singer and then all of the songs were sung live in the movie which is always impressive although obviously that is her job but like it's always good to hear and like now because there are quite a few modern musicals where not only is it not recorded live it's also auto-tuned to fuck Uh, and it's like no no she's she's doing it live but it's like precisely the right style of music which is sort of country folk working class DIY music like you can do it with a small band you see how much fun people are having in District 12 at this sort of speakeasy bar they all hang out at where they don't really have many resources but they're having a great time and like they did these massive concept albums for the other Hunger Games films which I love as an idea and there were a bunch of really good songs on there but one of the things that always frustrated me is that they would theoretically be kind of embedded in the world, but they were the wrong genres. So a lot of these bands were just kind of playing modern pop and rock. And it's like, no, it it should be far more along the lines of like Appalachian folk country, because that's what the story like very explicitly is. But they had a lot more of that in this sort of District 12 setting, which also was uh, the foundation of an argument I wound up having with Grace. Grace, Claire and I went together and uh, Grace and I had very differing opinions. Claire and I were both like, great film, not the best ever, but we had a really good time and enjoyed it. Grace was like, this is shit. And she also kind of was complaining about the world building of District 12 and was kind of saying, if there is this possibility of going to go and live on the land in this idyllic situation, which is what... Lucy Gray Baird and her community are able to do and if there is this quote-unquote secret place where they can all hang out at a beautiful lake together and go fishing why isn't everyone doing that and um, and she found this deeply implausible and was just like it's kind of stupid to have the suggestion that like you can just walk outside town and go fishing and no one else in the town knows where that is and I'm kind of partly like yeah I think more people in the town would know where it is and you would see more people going there But I also think that it's a pretty solid illustration of just how scarcity works in this setting and also in real life. Because like, A, in real life, you could theoretically go and live off the land, but it's discouraged by the law. Like, clearly you're going to get in trouble with the fascist police. And also, it means that you have, by nature, got to separate yourself from like the rest of society, which is what Lucy Greybeard is perfectly comfortable with because she is from this community that always lives off grid and travels around. But that that's not considered a comfortable lifestyle by most people who have grown up in a town, even if they're like not happy in that town, you know? Because like everyone who's living in District 12 is like, this is shit, but they're not necessarily trying to leave. And that's just how this works in real life. There is a certain kind of world building conflict there where I think there's some shaky elements in this film. And it kind of made me curious to know what you think about the idea of them instead making this into two films like they did with the final Hunger Games film. Like I know you didn't see it, but a lot of kind of viewers came out of this being like, this movie was already really long. Maybe you should have done it in two films and then spent more time fleshing out the world building and supporting cast. Yeah, so I haven't seen the original Hunger Games films, but I have read the books, and I can see that the third book can be two books, can be two films, rather. It's not like the others, and the structure is a bit different, and its concerns are different. You know, the first two books are heavily built around the Hunger Games. The third book is sort of a Revolution War story. So that feels like there's more scope to flesh out two shorter movies. Uh, What about this one? Well, it's difficult, isn't it? Because the problem is it's already got quite a strange structure in that the second act is 12 children fight to the death. And yes, I take the point that we've had four movies already that uh, sort of explore that world. But the problem is even now, if you go and watch any movie and the second act is 12 children's fighting to the death, uh, (laughs) like... What is Act 3? I think that is a massive challenge to a story like this. Maybe in that sense it could have benefited from being two films, but but also, where do you split it? 
Because I think if the first film is the first two acts of this film, and then the second film is, you know, the story of what happens afterwards, that third act is not the sexiest, most exciting part of this story. You know, it is essential, like it is, of course, an important part of the film, but... It's not the bit you're going to be telling your friends about, especially. You're not going to be talking about Snow as a peacekeeper in District 12 being the selling point of this movie. Which which I do think is a bit of a pacing issue, actually. Stuff does kick off in District 12, of course, and, and suddenly there's, you know, tense plot stuff kicking off. But until that happens, it feels strange. You're sitting there going sort of, you know, the bit you were really excited about has finished. And why hasn't the film finished? Yeah. Because, I mean, I don't know about anyone else, but I'm not rooting for Snow and Lucy Gray to get together and make it. (laughs) So it's more like this is a story of finding out what happens rather than kind of rooting for a particular conclusion. I think it probably was the right choice to make it one film. But I don't think either answer is perfect. And I think this is just the problem of doing a fairly faithful sequel of a book that I'm certain works really well as a book. Yeah. This is the thing, right? Because like the, the director has actually spoken kind of openly about regretting splitting the final Hunger Games into two movies. And I think that for exactly the reasons you've said, you can't you can't viably split this into two. Like maybe if I'd read the book, I'd have more ideas there, but it just seems like structurally it'd be hard to make two doable movies with this. But the result is you've got this film, which is already quite long. It's 157 minutes. And it feels like the world building is just a bit woolly compared to some of the others because there's some really hard-hitting details in a lot of the other Hunger Games films. And I guess it's like simplistic to say, but like they just, they should have done better. It was fun to watch. Like it was exciting. There was lots of interesting kind of concepts choreographed into the games themselves. And you've got these two compelling leads who feel very different from Katniss. And it didn't really feel like a, a retread for the most part, but it just also felt like they could have gone a lot deeper in terms of the political background of what's going on, both in the capital and also in District 12. And they sort of missed an opportunity there to get a bit smarter. And ultimately, that's like one of the most useless critiques you can ever have of a film because it's not saying like, oh, here's this one specific thing that I think was ill thought out or like something like that. It's just like, well, you should have just made it like 30% more clever. (laughs) (laughs) But we should discuss the very end of the film before we wrap up. Okay, so... Uh, we're doing spoilers now, I suppose, so warning to anyone who hasn't seen it. Yeah, I mean, we've spoiled much of the film, but here, yeah, let's, we're going to spoil the very end. <laughs> so, okay, so the end of the story is Snow has bribed his way to District 12, and he does find that Lucy Gray is still alive. He's not sure about that uh, when he first gets there, but, but she is, and she is still performing, and people love her. But Sejanus also is placed in District 12, and he is basically really taking to heart this opportunity to be a revolutionary. So he is getting involved with rebels who intend to smuggle both people and weapons. Although it looks like Sejanus doesn't realise that weapons will also be smuggled. Yeah, Sejanus is not a smart cookie. Yeah. Two major things are happening at once. One of which is Snow is actually finally having a bit of a romance with Lucy Gray. He is able to sneak off to a lovely lake And, you know, he is being offered this more simple off-grid life. And, you know, that looks plausible. But at the same time, his peacekeeping training is going incredibly well. Like, his superior, played brilliantly by Bern Gorman, who is absolutely incredible. I I hadn't considered that you, like me, you would be joining me in the Bern Gorman fan club. (laughs) (laughs) I just... I can't believe his voice. I don't think I've ever heard Bern Gorman use that voice before. Oh, he's fucking great. So good. He plays the sort of boss peacekeeper uh, who is blown away by Snow's abilities and goes, yeah, I'm giving you a massive promotion. And so it really looks like, oh, there's a very easy ticket back into into public life and into high society here. But it means he won't see Lucy Gray again. So, he, you know, he's got this choice between... Uh, you know, a woman he's attracted to and and living a simple life with her or getting back into into public life. And it is sort of ambiguous how how heavy this decision weighs on him. I, th- I think Snow is at his most unknowable in this part of the film. If the book are all about his inner life, the film makes a virtue of the fact that we don't get to hear his thoughts at this part of the film. Because, like, 
how early does he decide that he is not going to... So he shops in his friend, is the key thing. Like, Sejanus tells him, yeah, you know, I've got this really cool opportunity to get involved in a cool rebellion. And Snow does the Hunger Games version of recording him with a secret tape recorder and sending the recording to the capital and gets his friend hanged for treason. So we have no idea how calculated that is or how, you know, is is that just like a panic decision? Because the mechanic of recording in this world is, you know, you don't have like a, like a cassette player. They're birds that are programmed, you know, the, the, the jabberjays, which are used in espionage because the birds, like parrots, can mimic your speech, but unlike parrots, can mimic perfect recall of conversations. So... It could just be that he thinks, oh, maybe I should record this. And then once he's recorded it, well, it's a bird. It's going to fly back. It's going to be, in fact, it's going to be taken back to the capital. So now, you know, he doesn't actually get much of a chance to regret his decision to record the I mean, it goes into the box that is being sent off to Viola Davis. Yeah. So to stop Viola Davis getting this recording... What can he do? I guess he has to kill or free the bird. That's going to be really suspicious. This is obviously an act of betrayal, but how much is it inspired by panic and instinct? Or does he just find himself casually betraying his friend without really thinking about it very much? I I find that quite compelling, that idea. Yeah, I mean, there's also like the idea that this is the key part of his origin story here, in addition to obviously him deciding I'm going to prioritise working my way up the ladder in the capital. It's him just completely detaching himself away from any relationships because the relationships that really matter to him are his family and Sejanus, who is clearly his longtime quite good friend, and then also obviously Lucy Gray Baird. And he has decided he can't deal with like associating with Sejanus anymore. He is just like, this person is weakening me and is just like, his ideology is like not workable for where I'm trying to go in my life. And the very final act of the film is he and Lucy Gray Baird essentially decide to elope together, even though he has been offered this job, which will like improve his prospects by going to officer training in District 2. And he's very ambivalent about the idea of running away with her. But he does in the end, partly because he is implicated in killing one of these people who had the arms deal, and he's implicated in the, the rebel plot because he's friends with Sejanus. So he kind of sees this as the opportunity to get out of that. But then... When he and Lucy run away, they both end up at this like little fishing cottage where they've been hanging around with her Covey friends. And he finds under the floorboards the guns that were being smuggled. It is very internal, this section, because like there's very little of it is spoken. She realizes that he's not to be trusted and kind of ghosts him basically. And then he tries to find her. She like runs off into the forest without him realizing. Because she has finally realised like he's too dangerous to be around. He has killed someone that she doesn't know about because he mentions offhand like, oh, I've killed three people and she only knows about two. And she has this very kind of theatrical exit because like she really puts on her stage persona for kind of the final conversation they have where she's really kind of flirty and doing this kind of country music. Like she's she's upping her accent, I think, a little bit too because she has this like slight southern accent. And then he kind of chases her through the forest. She leaves a snake to bite him in this scarf that he'd given her. And that's when he realises that like she's really betrayed him and he starts hunting her through the forest. And she trains all of these Mockingjays to like sing to him, basically to distract him so she can flee. So she has this like very enigmatic exit, which I find fascinating because it like intentionally leaves him at an emotional loose end that he can never have closure for. Like the last relationships he had that were meaningful, he basically ended up killing his best friend. He then alienated the woman who could have been the love of his, of his life theoretically and abandoned the idea of having this kind of very free lifestyle in favour of being closed off and miserable forever as like this tyrannical president. And like, we know he has kids and grandkids and gets married and stuff, but it's not a happy man. <laughs> yeah, I love, love, love this sequence and this ending. It really speaks to so many other, you know, like I, I have watched a lot of prequels in my time. And it's just brilliant. I think it's brilliant, firstly, because because it is so internal. Basically, Lucy picks up on two things that he says. One of which is, 
he mentions about having killed three people. So that's the first thing. And she questions him about that because at that point she still trusts him and goes, who's the third? And his answer to that makes it clear that he's lying, he's hiding something. And that is enough for her. You know, we know that trust is really important to Lucy Gray. And it is actually irrelevant who he killed. Like, it doesn't actually matter who it is. All that matters is that he's lied to her. That's it. That's the death of the relationship right there. And then when he finds the guns, what he says is, oh my God, right, this is brilliant. This means there's no more loose ends because there is nothing anymore to tie him to the rebellion. All of the rebels are dead. The weapon has been found and he can just, you know, sink that in the lake. And Lucy clocks. So there is one more loose end, which is her. She is the only member of the rebellion who is still alive. Clearly, that is the point where she decides that she's going to run away. But even that, you know, we don't see the decision. We don't see, we don't know what running away means. We don't know if she's going to run and get support or whatever. We see him shooting her in the woods, but we don't see, well, we, you know, we assume it's her. Um, it must be her, but we have no idea how badly she's shot. We, we we just see that she falls, but she also gets away. She's certainly not fatally wounded in the, in the moment, whether she succumbs to her wounds later, we really don't know. And I think that is really satisfying and smart as well. Often with prequels like this, it can be quite tricky telling a story where we know the fates of a lot of characters already. We know what's going to happen to Snow because we've seen The Hunger Games. So often we end up more invested in the characters who are new to the prequels. We don't know their endings and therefore, you know, the obvious way that this happens is you have a character like Padme Amidala in the Star Wars prequels where, oh, we don't know what happens to her, but presumably she dies. And then, uh, spoilers for the Star Wars prequels, that is correct. Yeah, she just does die. So that's not particularly satisfying, I think. Whereas I think, and I'm not going to give away the ending of this, but Better Call Saul, the prequel to Breaking Bad, a lot of it's drive and excitement and thrills comes from the fact that we have the character of Kim in that, uh, who's sort of, you know, the co-protagonist and and love interest of the main character, who simply isn't in Breaking Bad. And so it feels like, oh, well, she probably dies, doesn't she? But we don't want her to. And like that investment is what makes that show work as well as it does, I think. And so here we have another thing where we are invested in Lucy Gray, but because our perspective is limited to Snow, we see everything through Snow's eyes, we will never know the end of her story either. It's really, really good. Yeah. And I mean, I remember when the book initially came out, there was a lot of rather simple discourse around the potential morality of making a book that might glorify this fascist villain. And like, should you even be focusing on this? Which is obviously like a very childish way of looking at this kind of story. And I understand where it comes from, but like, ultimately, Suzanne Collins is someone I feel like I can trust to not make a book that's really fashy. Whereas I know we keep coming back to this, but like, you look at the Harry Potter books and like, in the end, the political message of those is quite distasteful in terms of returning to the status quo rather than kind of creating any kind of revolution or a more equitable society, you know? So it's like, she has got a lot of thoughts on like how to create this world politically, but she also has, it's kind of essentially holding the audience's hand through the origin story for this villain. And I can see a lot of ways in which this wouldn't have worked. And coming out of it, I was like, although I definitely prefer the main Hunger Games movies, I think this is like a good film for teens, you know, just because it is so clear. Because at the moment, there's a lot of fiction in the kind of mainstream that people are sort of willfully misunderstanding en masse, especially in terms of political subtext and also like misunderstanding stuff that's very simple. And in this, it feels like such a straightforward illustration of how, you know, he is a product of his environment. There are people who have had very similar upbringings and can be more politically aware. And like the thing of The Hunger Games is that viewers in like America and the UK are effectively watching from the capital. That is like the the wake up call of this narrative, you know. And um, as with any kind of American dystopian story, there's always a lot to say about the way that it kind of adopts the imagery of overseas wars and then puts it in an American context with predominantly white leads. That isn't really the case in this because it has a Latina lead. But um, she's put a lot of thought into this. And like, you know, there is a turning point in this film where Coriolana Snow had the option of having a happier, simpler life. And like, whether it's viable to live off the land like this, we don't know. But he could have done that. And he decided not to. 
And he made this conscious decision to go and reinforce this incredibly toxic political system. And I think it sets things out in a really clear way that's accessible to teenagers, even in a fun way. I hope that doesn't sound like condescending, because obviously we were teenagers in the not so distant past, not hundreds of years ago. And I think we had brains and we would have been able to understand this very simple blockbuster story. Yeah, I like that as a concept, even if I was like, this should have been deeper. Yeah, well, it's an unusual type of film, isn't it? You know, Hollywood blockbusters tend to be of a particular type. We still get just a thousand versions of the hero's journey. Like, it's nice to see a Hollywood blockbuster that does do something different. I keep comparing it to the Star Wars prequels because that seems like an obvious point. You know, it's the tragedy of knowing that that he will choose the most horrible thing. Which, incidentally, listeners can hear... If you subscribe to the Overinvested Patreon, Morgan and I have recorded reviews of each of the three Star Wars prequels and also audio commentary tracks so you can watch the movies with us speaking in your ear about how bad slash great those films are. (laughs) (laughs) Because I am firmly of the opinion that while those are terrible films in many regards, there's a lot of interesting concepts under the surface. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I think. I think the world is better off for having the Star Wars prequels in them. I think they did broaden what Hollywood movies could do and could be, in much the same way that the original Star Wars slightly narrowed what films could be, I think. You know, I think it had a sort of a slightly contracting effect where... Oh, for sure. I mean, we don't need to clog up more time in this episode than this, but like, it is a famous turning point in the way the industry worked in the 1970s and eliminated an era of like mature popular films for adults. And so... I love the idea of the Hunger Games in general being... And, you know, the, the original Hunger Games movies themselves opened up the world to... You know, we did we ended up with quite a lot of dystopian YA yes. movies. <laughs> quite a lot of bad dystopian films like <laughs> Divergent. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, yeah, let's not relitigate The Maze Runner. But it was still nice to see a different type of film being made with this type of scale. You know, basically, I'm glad this film is as good as it is. I don't think it's a perfect film. I do think there are weird pacing issues. And and yeah, the world building is sort of quite strange in it, but it's so much better than I expected it to be. Indeed. So we have some very cool upcoming stuff too. And also, speaking of Patreon, if you go to the Patreon account now, We have an episode on Saltburn, which is now out in theatres and we hate it. So Morgan and I discussed Emerald Fennell's terrible new film Saltburn, promoted everywhere, politically distasteful, absurd and silly. And I think you will enjoy that. Also, if you're not a Patreon subscriber, you can go back and listen to our very negative review of Promising Young Women, which I think is something like episode 255. I don't recall. But um, yeah, go listen to Promising Young Women, which is our previous Emerald Fennell episode and also morgan and i are still planning to do a patreon exclusive review of season two of our flag means death which did air over a month ago but we loved it so we're going to talk about it however coming up next claire Bettles and i will be discussing the 1992 figure skating and ice hockey rom-com the cutting edge which i watched and found delightful unsurprisingly a cult favorite which was requested by a patreon sponsor so thank you very much and after that Stefan and I's December episode will be a true overinvested episode because we are going to be discussing the new Doctor Who specials, which air on the 25th of November, the 2nd of December, and the 9th of December. And these are the ones which are bringing back David Tennant's Doctor Who in a new form and showrunner Russell T. Davies, who shepherded in the new era of Doctor Who in the 2010s and is potentially Britain's best TV showrunner. So I think that is going to be great. And Stefan is um, the world's hugest Doctor Who fan. I've been preparing the research for this episode for all of my life. Also, Russell T. Davis and I grew up on the same street in Swansea. God, I didn't know that. Wow, yeah. <laughs> the connections. <laughs> I, I knew his parents. I think he'd gone to uni by the time I was born. But uh... How many people do you know who have been in Doctor Who? Oh, so very many. I've been in Doctor Who. <laughs> I I know. (laughs) Because you see, listeners who are not Doctor Who experts will not be aware how incredibly Welsh new Doctor Who is. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Because it's made in Cardiff. So many friends of mine, often people who work in comedy clubs uh, as a stand-up comic, that's that's most of who I get to know these days, end up getting jobs, you know, painting sets or, or... sort of doing admin roles for Bad Wolf, the company that makes Doctor Who. So so loads of my friends know loads about this series, and I've banned all of them from telling me anything. 
Yeah, so we will be back in mid-December at some juncture. We will we will try to record as quickly as possible after that final episode airs in uh, on 9th of December. And I'm greatly looking forward to this because I loved the Russell T. Davis era of Doctor Who. And um, also, like, in the intervening time, there's often a lot of the cases where a scenario like this means it's kind of regressing to nostalgia. And while obviously a lot of Doctor Who is very nostalgic because like it's got all these decades of canon, Russell T Davies has really upped his game. Like he is one of these writers who gets, you know, better with time, which is not the same thing you can say for someone like, just to pick a name out of a hat, Stephen Moffat. So (laughs) um, yeah, I think that's going to be really great to talk about. So coming up, The Cutting Edge and then Doctor Who in December. Stefan, where can listeners find you? Find me on uh, Twitter, which I'm still calling it, at uh, Stalin, that's S-T-A-L-U-N. Instagram as Stefan Allen, that's, uh, well, you can see how my name is spelt in the show notes, no doubt. And I'm on TikTok as Stalingrad, but with a U. Wonderful. So you can find me on Blue Sky at Gavia. You can find me at Tumblr and Letterboxd at Hello Taylor. But more importantly, you can find the show notes for this episode at overinvestedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Patreon at Overinvested Podcast, where you can get access to a ton of exclusive content, audio comedy tracks, bonus episodes, stuff like that. That's where Morgan's recording at the moment, because um, as regular listeners will know, she is taking a break from the main feed due to long COVID. We also are still sporadically active at Overinvested Pod on Twitter. And each new episode is up on Overinvested on Tumblr. It's really helpful if you like just share episodes or reblog them on Tumblr just so we can kind of widen our audience a little bit if you enjoy us. And also rate and review us on stuff like Apple Podcasts. Very helpful. So um, yeah, thanks for joining us and we will be back soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>